It's my joy and honor uh, today to preach from God's word, and and our text today is John uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. And so in in this text, uh, almost all of your Bibles have it in quotes, and if you have a red letter Bible, it's in red letters, Uh, but it is very likely uh, a reflection, a post-resurrection reflection on what's going on with, with Nicodemus. Uh, and, and especially the verses 13 through 15. And, and as we dig into our text today, we'll learn something about the love of God for the world and the way that God works among his creation. So again, our, our text is John three, sixteen through 21. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? John uh, three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he, the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Have a seat and let's, or this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and let's pray. Oh God, we we are desperate for your spirit to work among us and to illumine to us the truth of your word. We need your spirit to be at work in our hearts and in our minds to to quicken us and convict us of our sins, to to demonstrate to us the love of God, to seal us and make us his. So Lord, send your spirit among us. Help us to become more like you today and help us to serve you with gladness in our hearts. Use this time, Lord, for your name, for your glory, and be magnified among us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our text begins with the word for. This is a connecting word, and this is the most exciting thing you're going to hear today. It connects what came before it with what comes after it uh, as a, an interesting point of grammar. When we read these types of connecting words, for, therefore, because, we should understand that the author is wanting us to see connections between ideas in a section with the ideas mentioned in a previous section or sections. So super exciting grammar. The four connects our passage. And so because of this connection, I'm going to do a high-level overview of what goes on in 3, 1 through 15, because the four connects what we read today with what came before. So there's a setting. So there's going to be some slides that, that, that pop these words up. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He comes to him in the dark. And this introduces this light and darkness theme that is all over the the book of John and John's other writings. So in the midst of darkness, Nicodemus comes to the light of the world. 
And he, and, he, and he says something to Jesus. Nicodemus says, we know that you are from God because of your signs. So Jesus is God's messenger. Nicodemus recognizes this. Uh, Jesus speaks God's word. Jesus responds uh, to, to Nicodemus' statement by uh, giving a message from God. Uh, truly, truly, in verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, or from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is a, a, a way that uh, writers in the New Testament refer to heaven. Uh, they refer to heaven as the kingdom of God. So this message, this statement from God, uh, confuses Nicodemus. Perhaps right, his pharisaical training, his, his study of the laws and all the rules, that they predispose his thinking to a different way of seeing or entering or uh, stepping into the kingdom of God. There's a, a different way to enter the rest than being born again, the rest of heaven that God promises to his people. So he responds, he's confused. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? That's verse four. So Nicodemus is focusing on the born portion of Jesus' statement. How can I be born again? Jesus will explain this some for him in, in verses 5 through 8. But uh, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they have regeneration, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is nearly a complete restatement of his previous message with some additional material. Last week, David, our pastor, uh, pointed out that water and Spirit is speaking about the regeneration promised to us in passages like Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37, that the Holy Spirit will give life, right? He will restore us, and he will bring us to God. But Nicodemus still doesn't understand. He, he says in verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus addresses his Nicodemus's heir, and then he answers his question. His answer to the question of how can these things be? How can people be regenerated? How can they be born from above? How can they be born again and enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus's answer to that is pointing to the incarnation and the crucifixion, starting in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the incarnation. And Moses lifted, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and this is crucifixion, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is an, another way that they, uh, the gospel writers and the New Testament writers speak of heaven. So Jesus, the light of the world, is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity made flesh. And Jesus will be lifted up in crucifixion so that everyone who believes in his name might be given the right to become a child of God, to see the kingdom of God, and to enter the eternal rest of heaven. So the, the text of John 3 through 115 introduces the following themes, which you all have up on your screen, right? You have light and darkness, you have heaven, you have regeneration, you have incarnation, and you have crucifixion. And it is to these ideas, these themes, that, that John is adding some additional thoughts, some additional commentary, some post-resurrection reflection uh, in our text today. And there are three 
uh, reflections or three ideas, three themes that I'm proposing God wants us to ruminate on, right? Bring back up and chew on and get nutrients from for our souls. Uh, the first uh, is that the world is condemned. We see that in verses 18 through 21. Then we see that, we'll see that Jesus came to save the world, which is verse 17, and that the triune God loves the world. That's verse 16. And so uh, as you may have heard, I'm starting at the end and working my way back up to the first verse of our section because I think this best follows the shape of all of John 1, or 3, 1 through 21. And it's making explicit some assumptions already present in the text, uh, but not explicitly uh, stated. So our, our first point, our first theme that we're going to consider today is that of, of condemnation, right? The world is condemned, uh, starting in verse 18. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the world is condemned. Now, this is an idea that's uh, assumed and introduced earlier in John 3, 1 through 21, uh, but it doesn't get explicit attention until here, until verse 18. That, so the idea gets subtly introduced in 3, 3. If you look at 3, 3, it's, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. With the word unless, right, Jesus is communicating to us that there is a condition to seeing and entering the kingdom of God. And what he doesn't do in verses 3 or, or in verse 5 is tell us why there is a condition for entering and seeing the kingdom. No, notice, too, uh, that seeing and entering the kingdom from verses 3 and 5, uh, they're parallel to Jesus' statements regarding eternal life. Right? Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's verse 15, verse 16b. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, notice too that in 16b, that perishing is juxtaposed with eternal life. The opposite of eternal life is perishing. Uh, and eternal life is entering or seeing the kingdom of God. So whatever condition we are failing to meet without being born again, appears to place us in a status of perishing, which appears to be the opposite of entering the kingdom or having eternal life. Why are there conditions on seeing and entering the kingdom and on eternal life? And why is the world perishing? Verse 18 supplies the reason that the text previously assumed. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The reason for the condition on seeing and entering the kingdom and the reason the world is perishing is because of the standing of the world. It stands condemned. John continues by explaining how this condemnation is certain and the judgment currently rests on the world. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The light having come is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus, his descending from heaven 
to use the words of 3.13. We've seen this language to describe Jesus before in, in John 1. We see it in verses 4 and 5, which read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We see it again in, in 1, 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Like in John 1, here too we have a rejection of Jesus, right? In John 1, 11, it says his people did not receive him. And in 3.19, this rejection is, is couched in terms of love, right? People loved the darkness rather than the light. John explains why the world rejected the light. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. In God. Works play an important role in these verses, right? Your works. The works of the world are described as, as three things, right? They're evil from verse 19. They're, they're characterized as hating the light in verse 20. And they're, they're said to be not carried out in God in verse 21. The world doesn't come to the light. It doesn't come to Jesus as the incarnate Lord of, of all of creation who will save them from their condemnation wrought by their evil works because it would expose their evil works. They love the darkness because they believe it keeps their deeds hidden. Like our parents, Adam and Eve, they make for themselves coverings and attempt to hide from the presence of God. The world is condemned because their works are evil and they will not come to Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John's language in these verses is so broad. He's using words like the world, people, because he wants to cast a net so large that no one can attempt to hide from it. When John speaks of the world, he wants every listener here in this room, every listener in our city, every listener in our country, every listener in this whole sphere of blue that spins in space, right? He wants everyone to understand that he's talking about them, that they are condemned. All of us, as Romans 3.23 puts it, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But by way of application, right, the, the, this truth that the world is condemned, um, I want to read a section of, of Romans 1. In it, uh, the reason I'm doing this is because we'll see the unity of the various parts of the Bible. We'll see how they kind of mesh together and work together. For, for here, too, we see a judgment against the world because of its rejection of the light. We'll also hear a list of evil, light-hating, not wrought in God works. So uh, I, I'm going to be reading Romans 1 from the NASB, and I'm starting in verse 18. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, right? The wrath, right? Condemnation, uh, judgment. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, right? It's, it's light. It's evident. For God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, right? Light exposes things clearly. Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, right? They, they loved the darkness rather than the light. But they became futile in their speculation or futile, depending on who you are. Uh, and their foolish heart was darkened, right? This darkness. They loved the darkness. Professing to be wise, they become fools and exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So here we can see the rejection of God's radiance. We can see the denial of his light and the wrath and judgment or the giving over of mankind to their own evil actions. These evil actions, their evil works, are described in 24 through 32 of of Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul first condemns corruptions of of human sexuality and and sex or gender. Uh, Modern readers should read uh, 24 through 27, uh, those verses as rejections of homosexuality and, and transgenderism. Both are sins distorting God's created order. And then he continues in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled, this is the uh, first list, with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. So this first list of of, of vices, of sins, uh, is a general one. It's using catch-all terms uh, of the denial of, of God's light. They, they're supposed to be so broad, everyone could see actions that they've ever done falling in these, these lists. He says, uh, next, he continues, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Uh, the second list seems to focus on various forms of interpersonal antagonism uh, and is followed by a final list of, of 12 more vices. Uh, and, and they are these. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, this is the perishing we see in John, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul, too, in Romans 1, is casting a net so large that no one can hide from it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is giving us specific evil, light-hating, not wrought in God works. And the list like this requires two responses. Two responses. The first recognize any of the ways that you have participated in these light-hating works. For me this week, right, as I was meditating on this, I was struck by the last four vices in verse 31, which you should read as a, a cluster, right? Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You might even render this as senseless, faithless, loveless, merciless, 
as a few commentators do, to try to reproduce the effect in, in the Greek. In thinking about being without understanding or senseless, I, I began to ask myself, how many times have I not understood a person or a situation like I should have and assumed wrong things about someone else and acted foolishly as a result? I interpreted the situation like this, then presto whammo, right? I act like that. I act senselessly with my wife and with my children, at work with those I report to and collaborate with or report into me, in my relationship with friends, with my brothers, with my father. How many times have I been untrustworthy or faithless? I, I mean this both as a failure to do the positive aspects of my relationships with others and my willful doing what ought not to be done. I have failed to do what I'm supposed to do in my house as a husband, a father, and a son. I have failed to do what I'm supposed to do in my places of employment. I have failed to show up for my friends like the bonds of friendship require. I have not done what I ought, and I have not done, and I have done what I ought not to be done. And I have been unloving. I have lacked patience with others and especially my wife and children, seeking my own interest rather than also seeking the interest of others who God has put into my care. I have provoked, I've been provoked against them. I have taken into account the wrongs I have suffered from them. I have been unloving, and I have been merciless. I have sought to make others pay for the wrongs they have committed, either against me personally or against others on my team or in my camp or on my side. I have failed to live like Jesus commands in Luke 6, 25 through 36. But love your enemies. Or 30, uh, Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. I and you have not lived as we ought in our past and in our present. The first thing to do is recognize any of the ways that you have participated in these light-hating works, both in your past, but also in your present. The second is to confess them. John, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, put it this way. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We need to confess our sins before God. We need to pour out our hearts before him and also to each other. We see that in James 5, 16. Therefore, 
confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Our main response to the sinfulness pointed out in John 3, 18 through 21 is to seek to identify it, to recognize how we have hated light and the ways we continue to hate it, and then to confess it, to pour it out before God and to other Christians. It's our first point, right? Uh, that, that there is condemnation on the world and our response to it should be confession. But because in coming to Jesus and to others, right, with confession, the reason that we do that is because Jesus came to save the world. And our confession acknowledges that, which is the very next point we have uh, as we work up our passage, right? Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So your act of confession, your coming to God is an acknowledgement that you believe in the name of the only Son of God. Coming to him with your sins is an act flowing from faith that says, Jesus, you came to die on a cross so that your people could have eternal life. You were lifted up so that I could be born again through your spirit. You as the one who descended and and now is ascended at the right hand of God. You have made the way for me to enter the kingdom of God. That's what our confession says to Jesus. Jesus came to save the world. The light of the world shines in the darkness and grants an inheritance in light, uh, in a kingdom of light. We see that in, in Colossians 1, 12 through 13. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. By your simple act of of confession, you take the first step of repentance. Your acknowledgement of wrongdoing is the first step of repentance. You can't repent of things that you think aren't, aren't wrong. You have to confess them. You expose your sin to the light in the process of that confession. Ephesians 5, uh, 11 through 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. But let us leave uh, now (laughs) this consideration of of confession and repentance, and and we're going to turn to a a beauty revealed to us in in this passage. Uh, It's it's in our text, but it's in John 3, 1 through 21 generally, And, and this is the activity of the divine person's of the Trinity in our salvation? How does, the, how does the triune God work among us for our salvation? Our starting point is John 3.17. For God did not send his son. Three times in our passage, we see, revealed, uh, we see the revealed name of the second person of the Trinity. We see son. 
We see it in verse 16 and 17 and again 18. What do we learn about the Son from our passage? We learn that the Son is begotten. Right? We see that in verses 16 and 18. His only Son, or only begotten Son, and the only begotten Son of God. He is the Son, the Son is given to us, right? Uh, verse 16, he gave his only Son. The Son is sent, we see that in verse 17. God did not send his Son, meaning he's, he sent his Son, because the did not is the purpose statement. Not, he did not send him, he sent him, but uh, he did not send him to condemn, he sent him to save. And through the Son, the world is saved. We see that in verse 17. The world might be saved through him. It is particularly through the lifting up of the Son of Man that Jesus accomplishes his work of salvation. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is our God King. He is the only begotten Son of God. And as the second person of the triune God, he executes and achieves our redemption on our behalf. In this analysis of the personal revealed name of the second person of the Trinity, we bump up against the first, the Father, uh, though his revealed name is not explicitly mentioned in our passage. Father is, is never used here, but he's there. Right? It, it is the Father who begets the Son. We see that in verse 16 and 18. It is the Father who gives the Son in verse 16. It is the Father who sends the Son in verse 17. And it is the Father who wills that the world would be saved through the Son in verse 17. And the third person of the Trinity, he's there too, if you look in 3, 1 through 21. He's there. The, the Spirit is mentioned by his revealed name uh, in, in verse uh, 3 and verse 5. Uh, the 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 Spirit works to regenerate believers, right? Born of water in the Spirit. Uh, he applies the saving work of Jesus to us, right? We enter um, the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit, and he ensures our arrival home uh, by entering the kingdom of God. Salvation is the work of the triune God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it is now, as it is in the beginning, is now, and will forever be. Amen. And now that we have seen that the world is condemned and that Jesus came to save the world, and we get this little bonus about of how the divine uh, persons and the triune God work for our salvation, we're going to turn to what God's motivation in this activity. What motivates God to do these things? Why is God, the triune God, working in the world to save it? And the answer to that question is that the triune God loves the world. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves us. God loves me. God loves you. God loves us. Love is such an integral part of God's essence, of, of who he is, that the scripture equates him with love. 1 John 4, 7 through 8, Beloved, beloved, uh, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And it is this love that is the grounding from which his work to redeem us flows. God is love and God loves you. Do you believe this today? Would you see your need for a savior and confess your sins to God and to his ambassadors here on earth? Would you believe that Jesus came to save the world? Would you believe that he died on a cross and rose again three days later in order to pay the penalty for your sins and the sins of the whole world? Would you believe he did that for you? Hear the words of Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. And if this is you, if you are a repenting believer, I'm, I'm going to read a passage to close our time over you. Because this is a passage that has been precious for centuries to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and in, as I do so, I, I ask that you would prayerfully either close your eyes and listen or turn to Romans 8 in your Bibles and, and, and read along with me. The reason that this, this passage has been so precious because it speaks to so many different people. If you are fighting the fight of repentance, and it is hard, if you are wavering and believing that God actually loves you, if you sometimes feel crushed by, by the weight of life and by all these things that happen to you, I want you to hear this and rejoice in the work of our triune God in your life, and in the life of his church. So I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, and who does uh, not have the spirit of Christ, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
This is God's truth that he speaks over you today if you are in Christ. God has made this promise to us in his word, and he is making this promise to us at this table today.